Good morning. My name is Ian Benson. I'm an elder here. Get to preach sometimes, which is super fun. I'm going to pray for us, if that's okay. After announcements and all that, I need to pray. Uh, Jesus, it's, um, it's good to call you Lord. It's fun that you call me son. Uh, I'm, I'm just asking for each of us to sort of figure out more of what that looks like today. Would you do that for us? Would you, would you show us a little bit more what it looks like to be like you or to live our life in a way that uh, would not just please you, but would, um, yeah, all the ways that you desire us to. So um, we say, come Lord Jesus, come Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. Amen. Priorities uh, are pretty important, I think. They're a priority, actually. Right? Priorities, we all have priorities. We all um, make decisions every day, all day, all the time. We make decisions, this thing is more important than that thing. This person is more important than that person. Where we put our time, our energy, our money, right? We make priorities all the time. I would, I would go so far as to say prior, our priorities are really a reflection of who you are in a lot of ways, or at least how you're, a reflection of how you're living your life. Like if, if we just were somehow able to categorize or uh, list out all the things that we prioritize, it would be a reflection of, of our lives, right? Priorities are important. Sometimes they're decisions that we make. Sometimes we do them like sort of unconsciously. We just go about our lives and we just choose this way over that way. We choose this, this way to do it over that way to do it. Do it all the time. Priorities are a major part of our life. I'll give you an example. I, I think, well, let's see, how should I say this? I would prioritize acquiring a offensive asset at the trade deadline <laughs> over and above minor leaguers who won't make it to the big leagues for another two or three years. Uh, however, however, David Stearns, the GM of the Milwaukee Brewers, prioritized two to three years in the future over and above winning this year. See, there's priorities, right? We have priorities even though we're in a window right now where we have two of the best pitchers in the major leagues and we have a chance to maybe go to a World Series right now, he chose to push that off a little bit. <laughs> Priorities. This is one of the benefits of somebody giving you a microphone. You can vent out loud to other people. That helped actually a little bit. That was very cathartic. Thank you for allowing me to do that. Priorities are all around us. Priorities are a big part of our lives. Let me ask you this question, though. Does God have priorities? Does God have priorities? I mean, does God prioritize and prefer his time, effort, people? Does God prefer 
some people over others? Does God have priorities? That's a, that's a sticky question, right? Because now you're sort of like putting human attributes onto an infinite God that, I don't know, starts to get weird real fast. But maybe, maybe God has priorities too. There's a, um, an area of study that I've been, I've dabbled with in my life, I guess you could say, called systematic theology. It, it's exactly what it sounds like, a super boring way to think about God. But it's basically the idea of systematic theology is that you take all the scriptural verses in the Bible and you kind of like blow it all up and then you, you categorize them into buckets. And you take these buckets and then you connect the dots between the buckets and so that whenever there's a question about a verse or a thing or a topic or some theological concept, you can like zoom into it and see everything that the Bible says about that. So it's a very organized way of thinking about God. One of those buckets is the character of God. So if you study systematic theology, you'll spend a bunch of time thinking about the character of God. And so what that is, is basically looking at what makes God, God, and then conversely, what makes us, us, and not God, and like, what's the difference? And so you look at all the attributes of God. For instance, you might say, oh, and, and then that box is broken down into two other boxes. It's like this whole hierarchy thing. It's annoying. But basically, there's like, communicable attributes of God and incommunicable attributes of God, right? So there's things that God can do that we can't. Those would be like incommunicable ones. But then there's some things that we have in common with God, like God can love, we can love. But then there's differences. God's love is infinite and unconditional. Ours is petty and, you know, circumstantial. Our wrath is vengeful and hateful. God's wrath is filled with justice and mercy, right? So, it, there's a, so you break, break all this down. I give you all that useless information for just, just to, to draw our gaze into how to think about who the person of God is and how we relate to that. Now stick with me here. The systematic theological way is to say these are the ways that God is God and we are not. And I'm just going to give you the punchline at the end of that study Basically, it is that God is God, we are not, but you should still try to be like him. That's basically, that's basically the takeaway from it. That's the pastoral, take that away and go live your life now. You're not God, you never will be, but you should still try to be like him. This is, this is basically what it teaches, which I, I find to be rather shallow, right? Like I, I, to me, that's not very... Um, useful, I guess. I mean, it's, I can see how it could be, but for the most part, as somebody who's just been trying to walk with Jesus for a long time, you just figure out real fast that, like, it's really difficult and it's kind of pointless at times, quite frankly. It's hard to stay motivated. It's hard to live a life where you're, you're trying to be like Jesus, right? Just be like Jesus. And none of us can. But what I'm suggesting to you today is that maybe if we kind of put all that aside and look at how God prioritizes things, and then we look at how we prioritize things, and then we see where they mesh, or maybe more importantly, where they don't. Because then see, and I'm taking you into the mind, the 
theological concepts of Ian Benson. It's a scary place, but just stick, stick with me for just a second. Maybe if we think about God in terms of priorities and ourselves in terms of priorities and we see where they don't line up and where they don't match, then what happens is that all of our uniqueness... All of our uniqueness, all the ways you've been created, your life circumstances, the the world that you live in, right, because you're prioritizing things all the time, and you start to think about that in terms of how God would do it, how God does do it, how we see God do it in the scriptures, and you start to prioritize your life the same way, combined with the unique elements that who you are, you start, now we're not trying to be God, we're not trying to turn into God, now we're kind of like the image of God. That sounds biblical. Now, now you're starting to move towards living your life like an image bearer, unique, but with these attributes of God. Not trying to be God, not trying to be perfect per se, but prioritizing our life. Now let's just, just hold that like blob, that amoeba of thought, just like right here, just hold it there it's not fleshed out. There's nothing, no structure to it yet. Let's just hold that for just a second, okay? You with me? Everybody with me? All right. We're in the Gospel of John. Like Randy said, we're in the Gospel of John. The Word is the name of our sermon series, and it is an apt title. The Word, not just the spoken Word, but this idea that John's making this claim that Jesus is the Word of God, and that means he was there at the beginning. He was there during it all. He'll be there until the end. In fact, Jesus actually is God. This idea of wisdom, this idea that um, all of creation is born out of and from this person, Jesus. And he came in the flesh. And so we saw this beautiful prologue for a few weeks. We saw last week the kind of the launching of Jesus' ministry with John the Baptist kind of as a forerunner and, 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 and Jesus starting to like name people. He, he, he grabbed Nathaniel from the town of Cana and, and, and brought him into, the, brought him into his, his circle. He's starting to form his circle. And then we get to chapter 2. So I'm just going to read through our passage today. We're in chapter 2 of John, verses 1 through 11. This is the story you've probably heard a million times. This is the story of Jesus turning water into wine. So let's just read through it. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. No one knows what third day means, by the way. <laughs> there's, there's no... Logical. This is actually a little, I wasn't planning on saying this, this is actually a good little teaching point. Nobody really understands why he says the third day there. It doesn't make sense in the context. There's like four the next days in the narrative before this, so this would make it like the fifth day, not the third day. In terms of the wedding, this wouldn't be happening on the third day, this would be happening on like the fifth or sixth day. It's weird, nobody really knows. So I don't know, did John make a mistake? Kind of interesting. Anyway, on the third day. A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus asked. 
My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six, stood six water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw out some water and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that the water had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what we're going to do is we're just going to think about that little amoeba of thought that we had before that we're just holding in space, and we're going to apply it to this passage. Let's just, for, for just today, let's just walk through this a, a little bit and just consider what Jesus' priorities are, because they're all over the place. I mean, there's a ton of things that he's making decisions on at every step of the way in this story. Some of it's obvious, some of it's kind of underneath the surface. But let's just think about what Jesus is prioritizing, and then think about if we prioritize those same things. And this isn't an exhaustive list, right? This isn't going to be a list of the, if you just do these things, you'll be, you'll be good to go. This is just giving us a glimpse into who the person of Jesus was and is, and then therefore how God prioritizes things. Because I think God does prioritize things and people quite frankly. So let's think about it. First thing, first thing Jesus prioritizes is the requests of his people. His mom asks, his mom says to him, all right, so just kind of put yourself in the, in the, in the situation. His mom says to him, the wine's gone. And that's all she says. And it's like Jesus is like, I know what you're asking me to do, right? I, I know the implication of what you're suggesting here. But it seems as though Jesus initially doesn't really want to. And by the way, the woman thing, I'm not going to go in, into it where he calls her woman. He's not, it's not a disrespectful term, though it's not an endearing term. I, I've, the best explanation I've heard is that it's sort of like ma'am. Like it's a term of honor, but it's not something you would call your mother, so, so it's like, Jesus, the wine has run out. Ma'am, my hour has not yet come. It's like Jesus puts on his God hat, sort of. Like, he's not, he's not her son anymore. He's, and he knows he has an hour to come. That hour is the cross, right? He knows that an hour has come. And he knows that if he does this, the lid's off. The toothpaste is out of the tube. It's not going back in. If he does this, it's going to set off a chain of events that will lead to his hour. So it almost seems like, I'm reading into the scripture a little bit, but I think, I think it's fair, that Jesus has a plan to at some point perform a miracle that will launch this ministry that he's about to do. And it wasn't this. It wasn't to turn water into wine. 
I'm just guessing, but it's probably like raising someone from the dead or, you know, giving the blind sight or, you know, healing a cripple or a leper. What all the, he does a bunch more signs in John. It seems like this isn't his preference. But he does it anyway. He actually changes his path, if you will. He actually changes what he was thinking was going to happen at the request of Mary. So Mary's in the know. She knows what's going on at this wedding. They're running out of wine. It's going to be a big deal. It's going to be super shameful. She goes up to Jesus. You know, the wine's running out. Ma'am, I wasn't planning on doing this. This isn't, this wasn't part of the plan. And I'm, I'm just like imagining like the looks, that, right? This is her son. So she's watched Jesus grow up all this time. I, there, there must have been times where Jesus like did something, like he's playing with some blocks or something. And she's like, whoa, that's not normal, <laughs> right? Like did something semi-miraculous. She knows what he's capable of. She knows what he can do. And he knows that she knows that. And so there's just like a look between them. You're going to turn that wa- you're going to turn that water into wine, aren't you? I think you could do it. In fact, I'm pretty certain you can. Why don't you go do that? And then she just turns around to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. <laughs> Jesus prioritizes the requests of his people. Friends, to put it plainly, prayer works. I'm just telling you, prayer works. It's not like a magic thing or whatever, but Praying is a big deal, and it helps, and it works, and God listens to your prayers, and he's, he's for you, and he's not against you like we heard before. He listens to requests, and even if God's seeing the plan go this way, I know we, we like to think, a lot of us have been taught that God is almost like this cosmic robot, right, where it's just like marching through time, and things are just bouncing off of him and nothing, you know, you can't change, you can't change God, right? No, you can't change God, of course not. But I think God can change his mind. I think we see it in the scriptures all the time. I think we see it right here. Jesus prioritizes the requests of his beloved all the time. Second thing I think Jesus prioritizes is the marginalized. We talk about this a lot, and this is just another example. He often will reveal himself to the lowly and not to those who are in charge. Who is it that gets everything that's going on in this story? It's the servants. The servants. John makes a point to say the servants knew what was going on, but their boss, the headmaster, like the head waiter guy, was just like, amazing wine, way to go, totally oblivious. But it's the servants that that Jesus chooses to reveal himself to. God prefers, some of us might not want to hear this, but I believe the reality is that Jesus actually prefers the marginalized and those pushed to the margins of our society and those who are kept down, those who don't have voices, those who can't, don't have a choice to live Life in abundance. Jesus' heart is bigger for them. And I'm saying this as somebody who, I mean, I'm, I hold some religious authority. I, 
I mean, I'm not like wealthy, but by world standards, I'm crazy wealthy, right? Like I don't have to worry about my house being bombed or anything. Like I'm, I, I live in comfort and I'm not, you know, I'm a white man in America. Like I, I think I'm pretty low, quite frankly, on Jesus's priority list <laughs> of, of who he's revealing himself to, who he's talking to, who he's speaking to. Do we do that? Do I do that? Do I prioritize? Do, do I, am I in the office trying to get ahead? Like stepping on people every chance I get, kissing the boss's butt every chance I get to get ahead and like get that extra thing? Am I preferring the headmaster over the servants? Or am I seeing the awkward dude in the office that nobody talks to Maybe he smells kind of weird and eats weird stuff at lunch. I don't know, but am I giving him a chance to, to, talk, to talk to me? Am I, am I making myself available to him? Am I preferring and prioritizing him over and above maybe the career consequences of doing that? Do I, pref- do I prioritize and prefer the marginalized around me? Jesus does all the time. Third thing, Jesus prioritizes life over death every single time. The imagery John uses here is just, it's so beautiful. You have these dry jars, clay jars, dry and empty. And dead, I might even say. And Jesus fills them to the brim with the best, choicest, richest wine that you could imagine. To the brim. Jesus will always choose goodness and life for you, for me, for this world over death, over destruction, and over brokenness. Every single time. It's shocking to me how often Christians choose death and brokenness over Life and goodness. It's shocking to me. I, I, I know there's, I mean, there is the verse that where Jesus says, you, you should pick up your cross and follow me, right? Like, that's a, that's a thing. But, friends, Jesus died on the cross and came back to life so that you could have life. You don't have to go die on the cross now. You don't have to make decisions in your life to, to be some sort of martyr. You don't have to choose uh, the hard path and then think that that makes us noble as Christians or something. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? And, and I'm not preaching like a, uh, what do you call it, prosperity gospel thing. I'm not saying that. Look, life is hard and circumstances are hard and just because you're a follower of Jesus doesn't make it easy. But oftentimes Christians choose the hardest, most difficult thing around instead of just choosing life. Another good way to think about it is fruit, right? Like Jesus says, like, what's, what fruit is, is that tree bearing? If is, is, is it bearing fruit, then cut it down if it's not. So many of our life choices as Christians, we, make, we, we choose death instead of life. The, the concept of life in the Bible, so we, eternal life. I didn't, wasn't planning on saying this either, but so we're given eternal life, right? The Greek word for that is... Um, 
Zoe Ionios, which means, literally means life of the ages. It doesn't mean eternal life. Our Bibles translate it that way. It literally means life of the ages, which means it starts like right now too. So it's not like something that happens in the future. <laughs> when Jesus, all the passages that you're going to read in John where he talks about eternal life, he's giving you life now. Now. He's taking dead, dry, clay jars and he fills them to the brim, the text says, with the best stuff. The best. He prioritizes goodness over brokenness. He prioritizes life over death every single time, and we should too. And then lastly, and this is the most important one, Jesus prioritizes relationships over religion. Every time. This is probably John's main point. This is setting up certain markers for things that are coming in John later. Just put ourselves there for a second. You're at this wedding. This is in a little town. I read somewhere there was probably only like 65 to 75 people, they think, living in Cana at the time. Tiny, tiny town. Not very many people. Everybody knows everybody else, right? Everybody knows. And it's a big deal to have a wedding there. And Everybody knows everybody else and probably have for generations, right? You didn't travel back then very often. It's dangerous and expensive to travel. You stay with your tribe. You stay with your village. You stay with your town for the most part. And because it's so small, there probably aren't a lot of weddings. So here we have this wedding, and everybody gets invited, the whole town. Jesus and his guys come to Jesus' mom, probably because Nazareth is pretty close, so there's probably some overlap of social circles and all of that. So everybody kind of knows everybody, or at least knows of them, for sure. You're at this wedding, the wine starts to run out. Jesus' mom comes and says, hey, do, do the thing you do. Jesus looks around and goes, okay, I'll do it. And he could have done this in many different ways, right? He could have just said, have people put water in their own cups, and then he could have just like, boom, turned it all into wine, right? He could have done that. He could have like, I don't know, created a stream out of the wall of wine flowing. They could have just went over and like filled up their cups. I mean, there could have been a whole bunch of different ways that he did it. But he looks around and he sees these jars that we're told in the text are used for ceremonial washings. Ceremonial washings for religious reasons, supposedly to worship him. And by putting wine in them, he renders these things useless. You can't use them anymore. They're defiled. You can't, you can't. So what they would do is they would fill, they would put water in these things and they'd, they'd have to be done in a certain way. And there's so many of them. There's six of these 30-gallon jugs, right? That's big. They're big. It's a lot of water. Probably that much water, it was used for um, like an immersion cleansing ceremony. So like a priest or somebody before they went into the temple or if they had been doing something like killing an animal or whatever recently, they'd have to like actually walk down these steps, immerse themselves in this water and then come out and that would be like the, they're now ritually clean, right? You can't, you can't do that anymore with these. They're useless for that. And yet Jesus is like, I kind of like the use of them doing this. 
which is what? He's, he's basically looking at the, the bride and the groom and what shame is about to fall on them for the wine running out, which sounds to us like it's just an inconvenience, right? But to them, it's not. This is, I had a really hard time coming up with a parallel for our like society, what would be something similar, but we don't live in a shame, honor society, really. And so we don't really have a good... But trust me, it would have been a big deal. It would have been super embarrassing. So embarrassing. You'd have all these people there, all together. They all know each other. They're all from the town. They see each other in the market every day. They run into each other all all the time. Their kids play together. Did you hear? They ran out of wine. Oh, my gosh. You'd be, like, embarrassed for them. And at the same time, like, what were you thinking? This is a horrible, horrible situation. And Jesus chooses, chooses that, those relational dynamics to breathe life into that over the religion of ceremonial cleansing. He chooses those relationships over the religion. This is, this is the most blatant and obvious part of this whole passage that John's going to capitalize on more and more and more and more. Jesus chooses relationships over religion. My gosh, Christians, can we be more like Jesus in this way? Can we prioritize relationships over our religion? How many times? I'm, it, is, it is like, it's almost like the in thing to do now, it seems like is to kick family to the curb, to ostracize someone because of their, I don't know, whatever, something they believe or don't believe or, or whatever, instead of just, cho- like, I was going to say, what, what do you think Jesus cares more about? But we can see what Jesus cares more about right here. What does he care more about? The ceremonial cleansing, which he, him and the Father, instructed these people to do. Right? It's there. It's his idea. I'm the one who told you to do that. Here's what I actually think about your religion. I prefer these relationships to, to be maintained and restored and so that there's not shame and dishonor and embarrassment to come on somebody else. I'm going to help them out. That's more important to me. Do we, can we start doing that as Christians, actually put away our religion? So that, that might look like you're going to be family with people who don't share the same religious views as you. I am telling you, you don't need to defend Jesus. God does not need defending. You are not helping the kingdom by cutting people off. And look, I get relationships are super complicated and there are definitely such things as unhealthy relationships and sometimes we need to like, look, this isn't all that, all the disclaimers and all that business. But I'm talking about, like, if ever faced with, like, well, I don't know, does Jesus want me to be friends with a person who acts like that? I don't think so. I'm on your side, Jesus. I'm telling you right now, Jesus is going to be like, I don't give a crap about your, quite frankly, your loyalty to me. I don't care about your religion. I care about the life that you live. I care about how you treat people. I care about how you go about your business, how you prioritize things around you. Are you preferring others over and above yourself? 
Are you choosing love instead of hate? Are you making these decisions? Are you choosing relationships over your religion? And the answer is so often for us Christians, we don't. We don't. We're almost known for it in a lot of ways. We're almost known for choosing our religion over our relationships. I, uh, I believe that by forming in our minds, considering our priorities and overlaying that with how God prioritizes things and specifically how Jesus does in the scriptures, that with all the little minute details that make us us, you can live a life of beauty and goodness and prosperity and, and, and abundance and joy, unending. I'm, I believe that. I believe that's what, what Jesus is calling us into. But if we're going to be obsessed with kind of categorizing the attributes of God and then striving to be something we know we can't be, we're just going to get disappointed. We're going to lose heart. We're going to lose faith. It's going to be hard to, to keep going. And then we just become apathetic and go on and live our lives and maybe try to find a little bit of happiness here or there. Or we can actually be serious, be good disciples of Jesus and say, what is he prioritizing? And do I prioritize that too in my life? I think we can. I think he's given us the spirit to be able to do that. I think he's calling us to do that. He's equipped us to do that. I think we should try and do that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you again for um, the privilege that it is that I get to call you Lord of my life. Um, I thank you that you call me son. I thank you that you... um, you look on me with joy and excitement and hope. Uh, quite frankly, I don't understand how or why, but I want to know a little bit more today. And so today, would you just help us all do that? Would you just help us all try to see and understand a little bit more of what your um, heart is for us, for this world? Would you pull away all the, all the garbage that isn't um, of you and for you and by you? Yeah, it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.